Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. <laughs> All right, here's what we got going on. We got we got Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11, we're going to be starting in verse 10. Before we start actually reading, though, this study is actually kind of a piggyback on what we saw over in Genesis chapter 10. In Genesis chapter 10, if you looked at that, it could be broken up into the family of Japheth, that was verses 1 through 5, the family of Ham, which was verses 6 through 14, and then verses 21 through uh, 31 were the family of Shem. The family of Shem was a study that we did two weeks ago. It was week number 46 in our study through the book of Genesis. I know, it doesn't feel like it's been 46 different studies that we've had so far, but it was number 46, today is number 48. So two weeks ago, we were looking at the family of Shem. And you remember when we looked at that, Bianca noticed something, and she said, how come Peleg doesn't have any of the descendants named after him? And so we, we just took a peek, a real quick peek into the material that we're going to be studying today to see that he actually does have descendants. All right, so when it was over in Genesis chapter 10, it didn't follow the line of Peleg, it followed his brother Joktan, and then today we get to follow the descendants of Peleg and look at that a little bit. Some of the things that you'll notice on the board that I've written here, you know I like to use whiteboards. It's probably one of the more busy ones that we've ended up seeing. This information up here, basically the stuff in green that you see here, this is from the studies that we did uh, when we were studying through Genesis chapter 5, and that was studies numbers 26 and 27. So we're pulling some information that we looked at quite a while back, probably 20 studies ago, and then we're going to be adding to that. So what it's doing for us is it's providing a family tree or a family line from Adam all the way down to Abram. Okay, so now, like I said, we're piggybacking off of the uh, the family line that was mentioned there in Genesis chapter 10, having to do with the family of Shem, and we're kind of picking up and covering some of that material over again when we're looking at Genesis chapter 11, verses 10 through, I don't know, we might get through the end of the chapter today. Wouldn't that be crazy? I think that would be the biggest block of verses we've ever done. We'll see. Uh, I can tell you right now, we will be looking at more closely verses 27 through 31 in our next study, God willing. Um, but uh, for today, the bulk of the material is going to be 10 through 26, but we'll also read those last ones as well, just to kind of fill in the names up here. So if you want to, here's what I would recommend. I'm going to go ahead, I'll go ahead and read it, and then you can follow it, and it's basically going to go from here down to here, all right? And the way to interpret this big mess on the board here, uh, I'll give you a couple of the ideas here. For example, this age right here, this number, 100, that's the age that Shem was when he had our facet. All right, so it's, I'm giving you the number between those names to show you how old that person was when they gave birth to the next one, all right, as far as from the text. These come right out of the text. So as I read through it, follow it on the board and see if I'm right, see if I make any mistakes, and you'll see when Shem was 100, he had Arphaxa. When Arphaxa was 35, he had Salah. Okay? And then it ends up also telling us how long they lived. So, for example, Shem was 100 when he had Arphaxa. He lived 500 years after that. So he lived a total of 600 years. We have to fill in the 600. All right? That's not actually in the text. Same with Arphaxa had Salah at 35. He lived another 403 years. We fill in the difference. It's 438. Okay? So you'll get to see on the board as we go. 
you know, where the numbers come from. All right? Everybody good with that? Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to move out of the way because I'm kind of in the way. I should also say this. Some of these numbers are approximations, and I'll explain this more as we get going. Uh, but, for example, one big approximation that I need to throw out there is that the concept of zero didn't exist at this time. The concept of zero as a counting place is something that's even since the time of Christ. All right, so our Bible, there isn't really a concept of zero. For example, if you have a child, all right, and on the one-year anniversary of that child, you and I would say that child is one year old, right? Because it's the one-year anniversary of their birth. There are even cultures to this day that do it the same way that in biblical times they did. There was no measuring age and, you know, oh, my child is half a year old or my child is two months old. It was, they're born, they're one. And at the one-year anniversary, you're counting it two now. All right? So like I said, there are even cultures today that do that where their age, you ask them how old they are, and you get this weird answer, and they go, well, you know, in Korean years, I'm this many, but in, you know, American years, I'm this many. And you're going, well, what is that all about? All right? So the concept of zero right there in the factor, you know, that could make these numbers a little bit different. And then we'll talk about more when we talk about Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Abram, Nahor, and Haran after we read through the list. All right? So here we go. Genesis chapter 11, verse 10. This is the genealogy of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begot Arphaxad two years after the flood. And I should mention, this number over here is the number of years since the flood, or after the flood. All right? The rest of these are not filled in. We're only given Arphaxad as the starting point. It was two years after the flood. The rest of those we fill in by adding the age of each of those next person being born. So this one, being 35-year gap between our facts and Salah, you would add 35 to 2, and you get 37. Okay, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Any questions at all so far? <laughs> all right, here we go. Verse 11, after we begot our facts, Shem lived 500 years. So he was 100 years old when he had our facts, lived another 500 years, having other sons and daughters. So we know now, oh, okay, that tells us approximately how old he was when he died, 600 years old. So Shem lived 500 years and begot sons and daughters. Verse 12, Arphaxad lived 35 years and begot Salah. After he begot Salah, Arphaxad lived 403 years. So there's the 35 plus 403. 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Salah lived 30 years and begot Eber. After he begot Eber, Salah lived 403 years and begot sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and begot Peleg. After he begot Peleg, Eber lived 430 years and begot sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and begot Ru. After he begot Ru, Peleg lived 209 years and begot sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and begot Sarug. After he begot Sarug, Ru lived 207 years and begot sons and daughters. Sarug lived 30 years and begot Nahor. After he begot Nahor, Sarug lived 200 years and begot sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and begot Terah. After he begot Terah, Nahor lived 119 years and begot sons and daughters. Now Terah lived 70 years and begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. So that whole section, verses 10 through 26, it starts off with these words. This is the genealogy of Shem. Remember how we talked about if you break Genesis up into sections, they each start with or they each contain that Toledoth. These are the generations of, or these are the histories of, or this is the account of. So this is a tip-off in verse 10, that this is an entire section by itself. And the reason I bring that up right now is because look at the very next verse, verse 27. This is the genealogy of Terah. That's the start of a new section. 
So when Moses compiled these different accounts, he has this section, verses 10 through 26, and then he sews it together with the next section, which begins in verse 27. So verse 27, this is the genealogy of Terah. Terah begot Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran begot Lot. All right, so now I've got some, you see I've got Abraham, Nahor, Haran. Haran begot Lot. All right. And Haran died before his father Terah in his native land in Ur of the Chaldees. So I've got here, died in Ur. Then Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife is Milcah. And then it further tells us the daughter of Haran. So she is actually related to Haran. Oh, we got another name thrown in there. The father of Milcah and the father of Iscah. So Haran was the father of Milcah and Iscah. All right, so that's just kind of explaining why I've got those written up here as well. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. This is going to be a big deal later on. <laughs> All right? It's just mentioned to us just to plant a seed. Later on, in a further study, we're going to find that that's a big deal. All right, so it says there, But Sarah was barren, and she had no child. Verse 31, And Terah took his son Abram and his grandson Lot, the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and they went out with them from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land of Canaan. And they came to Haran and dwelt there. So the days of Terah were 205 years. That's how we have this, 205. And Terah died in Haran. All right? Some of the neat things, though, in doing this and putting it up on the board is you get to see some patterns and you get to see other things that maybe jump out at you that you might not see otherwise. For example, in peak, these are the number of years since the flood. So, for example, just picking a name, uh, that's Peleg is 101 years after the flood. All right. Or Ru is 131 years, or Sarug 163. Nahor is born 193 years after the flood. Okay. Some of the other neat things, and this was from the study that we did back then when we did studies 26 and 27, these are the number of years until the flood. All right. So up here you've got, for example, Enoch. At the time that he's born, it's still a thousand years off. The flood is still a thousand years off. Now, a couple things to mention about this. Number one, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Were they triplets? They were not triplets. Turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5, the very last verse. What does it say there? Noah was 500 years old, and Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Good job, Bianca. Thank you. So you have Shem, Ham, and Japheth being born, according to that verse, when Noah is 500 years old. But we know they're not triplets. We know that Ham, from reading further and doing our further studies, Ham was the youngest. And as for who was the oldest, it could have been Shem or it could have been Japheth, depending on the translation and the way that it's translated for the translation that you're reading. We don't know. But we know they're not triplets and there's not even twins in there. They're all three born at different times. It helps us to realize that the very last verse of chapter 5 is an approximation. All right? The author is telling us, basically... That Noah, when he got to be 500 years old, he started having children. And he had children of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Does that give us their birth order? Shem, Ham, and Japheth? No, it's not even their birth order. Because we know that Ham is the youngest from the studies that we've done. So it's giving us an order of children that is not the birth order. Perhaps it's the order of significance in the stories that we looked at in our studies. All right. Shem gets the bulk of the interesting information in the stories that we find in the account, and he's obviously the one that uh, God's chosen promises is going to end up coming through. Ham, he has that uh, the story you don't want to have associated with you where he messed up, all right? And so there's that story that goes with him. And David doesn't have much of a story at all. He's just got some descendants, all right? 
So it's not the birth order. So what that tells us is the very last verse of chapter 5 is an approximation. It tells us when Noah started to have kids, and it doesn't even include birth order. Mm -hmm. Why do I bring this up now? It's because it's the same thing down here. When Terah ends up having Abram, Nahor, and Haran, you might be tempted to think that Terah ended up having Abram first, and Terah ended up having Abram when he was 70 years old. But you end up finding that that actually doesn't fit when you actually start to chart it out and when you look at other places in the Bible. One of the things that you know that I like to do is I like to let the Bible tell us what to believe about other places in the Bible. Turn to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Somebody mind reading those. The high priest asked, Are these statements correct? Then he said, Brothers and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, previous to his settling in Haran. Good deal. And how about three and four? Somebody want to read those? Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. Here's what I'm trying to point out to you in that passage. This is Stephen the martyr. All right, He's going to die at the end of this sermon. All right. In his sermon, he's giving a, a brief recounting of the history of their people. And in that accounting of the history of the people, he says something interesting that we don't get from Genesis. And that is that Abram, Abraham, stayed in Haran until the death of his father. His father is Terah, right here. His father, we find out, going back to Genesis now, Genesis chapter 11, how old is his father when his father dies? How old is Terah when Terah dies? Verse 32, 11, 32. He's 205 years old. So if Terah had Abram at 70 years old, we would do 205 minus 70. Okay? Mm -hmm. That would be 135 years. That Abram would be waiting for his dad to die. There's a 135-year wait for Abram as he's waiting for Terah to die before he leaves Haran and goes to Canaan. We're going to find out as we start to read through the story, he's already in Canaan well before that. He ends up moving to Canaan when he's 75. He ends up moving to Canaan when he's 75. He ends up having Ishmael when he's 86. He ends up being told he's going to have the Son of Promise when he's 99. At 100 years old, he's now the father of the Son of Promise. At 100. All right? If Terah had Abram at 70, it doesn't fit. To reconcile, to use the Bible, to interpret the Bible, you have to figure that something else is going on. Something else... Oh, wait a minute. Up here we have a pattern. We have these three sons being said to be born to Noah at the age of 500, but we know that none of them are triplets, not even twins. They can't all be born in the first year. Somebody has to be born first. Somebody has to be born second. Somebody has to be born third. We know from the text that Ham is the youngest. Shem or Japheth ends up having to be born first. Oh, but there's another problem here, too. Because if you see Noah has these sons, and it says at 500 years old, and then Shem has a son that's Arphaxed at 100 years old, it says the flood came in Noah's 600th year, but we have Arphaxed being born two years after the flood. We're off by two years up here. What ends up happening? How can you make that fit? If Ham's the youngest, make Japheth the oldest. Shem being born two years later, all the numbers fit. Does it fit with what we read? Yeah, it does. It fits. How about this down here? If we recognize from that pattern that this is not birth order, and these are not triplets or twins, let's suppose that maybe this is not the birth order. Let's suppose maybe that at 70 he starts to have kids. Oh, but look at this. If you look at the text, 
who does Nahor marry? Nahor is the brother of Abram and Haran. Who does Nahor marry? He marries the daughter of Haran. The daughter of Haran. Now, I know what you're thinking. Boy, she must have been young, or he's really old, or something else is going. Or maybe Haran's a firstborn. Maybe he's the firstborn, and he ends up being born far enough in advance to have an adult daughter of the right marrying age to Nahor. We're speculating, but it's a possibility, and does it fit? Yeah. It can fit. If Tara ends up having Haran as his firstborn at 70, and he ends up having a daughter, Milka, who ends up becoming the wife of Nahor, there's the possibility that you can have Abram being born as the youngest. At what age, we don't know, unless we look at the clue that Stephen gave us. Stephen gave us a clue that he waited till his dad died before moving to Canaan. If his dad dies at 205 years, that would mean, at a minimum, Abram is born 352 years after the flood. It has Abram being born 60 years after Haran, 60 years after his older brother. That seems kind of strange. Could Terah end up having a son at 130? Abram ends up having a son at 100. And then he ends up, after his wife dies, Sarai dies, Sarah at that time, he ends up getting married again and has six more sons after he's 130. <laughs> All right, so he's able to accomplish it biologically, all right? So it's not too far of a stretch. Here's what I would propose. The numbers actually work if you have Terah giving birth to Abram at 130 years old. And then when Terah dies, Abram moves to Canaan, and he's in Canaan for all the numbers to work, for the age of him to be 75 by the time he gets there, to be 86 at the birth of Ishmael, to be 99 when he's told of the Son of Promise, to be 100 by the time the Son of Promise arrives, all right? So the numbers actually work. So it's kind of fun to look at that. Here's a couple other things to look at. When you look at this chart, what's one thing you, you notice about these numbers? Do you know what these numbers are? These are the number of years old that they are at the time of their death. Adam lives to be 930 years old. 912 for Seth, Enosh 905, 910 for Canaan, Mahalalel 895, and you can see the rest of the numbers there. If you take all these numbers right here and you average them out, you get 912 years as an average. 912 years as an average for those guys. Oh, but look at this. Down here, these guys, only 445 years. It's like half. Oh, and then these guys down here, the average, 212 years. That's weird. It almost suggests that maybe something big happened between here and here. Something big. Can you think of anything big that might have happened between these guys and these guys? The flood. Right here. There are people that proposed to you that the flood was a local event. It was just a bank, a riverbank overflowing its banks. One thing that we've found in here, you can take the Bible seriously. This suggests that the flood was a big event. It affected the lifespans of humanity. It suggests there was something huge that happened here. And we look at it and we find, oh yeah, the flood was right there. Did that change things around the world? Well, you better believe it did. Why did their lifespan drop in half? Some of the proposals have been, well, originally, where did the waters come from? Remember there were waters above and waters below? That maybe the waters above that aren't there anymore, maybe those waters above were protecting us from something. Maybe, I don't know, UV light from the sun is one of the proposals that I read. Some of the other proposals were eating was different. Do you remember anything different about eating before the flood, after the flood? What was different? Meat. Meat. They started eating meat after the flood. Before the flood, it doesn't give an indication that they were eating meat. So that maybe eating dietary habits, maybe the earth itself being different, causes a drop in lifespans. Or maybe it's God himself implementing what he said originally. It's going to be 120 years. Maybe God himself working through these things, bringing man's lifespan down. Why would God do something like that to us? It's because up here when Adam sinned, we now all inherit <coughs> that sin gene from Adam. It's miserable to live 
in a world that's fallen. It's miserable to live in sin, and God in his graciousness maybe is saying, I'm not going to make them endure this kind of life for these time periods anymore. I want to give them a chance to make a choice, and when they make the choice, then we can enter into eternity. That's kind of a gracious thing. Remember when he kicked them out of the garden? Originally, when they were in the garden, they, there were two trees. Do you remember what the two trees were? Tree of life. Tree of life, and what? What was the other one? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. When they ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil in disobedience to God, what did he do? He banished them from the garden. Why? So that they wouldn't eat from the tree of life. He didn't want them to exist perpetually in the fallen sinful state. He kicked them out of the garden in mercy to help them to see this is a miserable life when you disobey God with the ramifications of sin that enter in. All right. Down here, so we got a big event, the flood. How about between this group and this group? Was there anything big that happened there? I mean, you, you see another drop. It's cut in half, the ages. Right about, it looks like, I don't know, Peleg is this guy, Eber is this guy. So it looks like it starts with Peleg. Do you remember any particular comments mentioned about Peleg? Genesis chapter 10, verse 25, what does it say about Peleg over there? It gives an additional comment that nobody else really gets. Nobody else is giving this comment. What does it say about Peleg? Division. Division. What kind of division? The earth was divided. We don't know in particular what kind of division it was. The hearers apparently did, but it's been lost to us. Some of the proposals you remember from that study, it could be a dividing of the languages or it could be dividing of the earth and spreading of the continents. I'm just throwing those out there as ones that I've run across. But something big did happen, and Peleg gets a notation of it, that something big happened, there was a division in the earth. Oh, and interestingly, their ages dropped. Their average age, cut in half going from here to here, cut in half again going from here to here. Their ages drop. By the way, Abram is going to end up living to be 175. You see the ages continue to drop. Sarah ends up dying, I think, at 127. The ages are dropping. Okay? So it's one of the interesting things. What does that say? What is that one of the things that it says? This says that this is not made up. When you start to see the evidence and you put it up in such a way that you can actually start to work with it, you go, this declares something big happened here. This declares something big happened here. Oh, by the way, the Bible actually fills in the gaps for us a bit and tells us, yes, something big happened here. Something big happened here. All right. well, uh, from the time of Adam down to the time of Abram, to figure out how many years it is from Adam to Abram, basically what you do is you take this number right here, and then if you were to take it, I don't know, let's say 352, which would be the birth of Abram, what do you get an approximation of that number right there and that number right there? I think I heard it. 2000. About 2,000 years. Genesis chapters 1 through 11 span 2,000 years of human history. 2,000 years of human history in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. What does that mean? You're looking at a third of human history in these 11 chapters. A third of human history. Maybe there's stuff to be learned from that. You know, you hope you learn in the first third of your life things that will help you make better decisions. You hope that you learn and you make better decisions based on the, the information that you have from the earlier part. We have a third of human history. What are some of the things that we can learn from that? Well, Genesis chapter 1. What do we learn? We learn that there's one true God. We learned that God has a sort of a plurality of nature, a plurality of personalities, in a sense, when he says, let us. We learned that God is sovereign over creation. We learned that his word is powerful. He just needs to speak, and it happens. 
We learned that God is sovereign over the created order. He's sovereign over the earth. He's sovereign over the skies. He's sovereign over the heavens. He's sovereign over the seas. He's sovereign over the animals, sovereign over man. We learned this in the first chapter. We learn that man is created in God's image, unlike anything else from creation. We learn that man is not on the same plane as animals, but is elevated by God himself. In chapter 2, what did we learn? We learn that it's man and woman. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. No offense, Steve. (laughs) We learn that the pattern for marriage is based on a man and a woman. We should be learning that. We learn that man's given a job to do, and there's nothing shameful about working. We learn man's given responsibilities and authorities, but he's also given a stewardship. Man is entrusted with responsibilities given to him by God. In chapter 3, what do we learn? We learn that man is prone to failure. We learn that God is sovereign over the animal kingdom, and God is sovereign over mankind. We learn that when man sins and disobeys God, that God judges that. But in judging man's sin, in showing his sovereignty over man, he also shows grace. He covered our shame with the slaying of an innocent animal that he provided man and woman skins to cover up. God slew something innocent as a substitute for mankind. What do we learn in Genesis chapter 4? Well, we got to see murder. Cain murdering Abel. And then later on, you find a guy named Lamech in verse 23. He kills some unknown man, some unnamed man. We learn that God judges sin. God punished Cain. God showed his sovereignty over the earth by cursing the earth that Cain would no longer be able to get the food out of it as readily as he was used to doing. But in judging Cain, we also saw grace. God provided a seal of protection over Cain. He didn't deserve that. Just like Adam and Eve didn't deserve the skins. Genesis chapter 5, what did we learn over there? We learned that even through man's decisions to have children and to give names to those children, remember that study? We looked at the meanings of their names. We learned that even though man makes his choices, mankind makes his choices, God is still sovereign over those choices. That God still works it out, that it declares his glory. We learned through those names and the pattern of those names, and as you look at those translations of those names and you create the composite picture, it's a declaration of a gospel message that's still thousands of years in advance, still thousands of years forward. Because you remember, Genesis chapter 3, one of the things over there, there was a promise. God made a promise of a salvation to come, a savior to come in the distant future. And here he lays it out in just the meanings of their names. God's fingerprints are all over it. What do we learn in in Genesis chapter 6? In Genesis chapter 6, God warns, in his grace, he warns that he's going to exercise judgment over our sin. He doesn't just do it, bam, everybody's dead. He warns in advance of his judgment to come. That shows a picture of God's grace as well. Chapter 7, he shows his sovereignty again, this time over the animals. He brings the animals to Noah. He shows his sovereignty over the earth, the creation, causes the waters to burst forth, causes the flood to come. And he shows his grace again in this chapter. He shows his grace by saving people out of his grace. Genesis chapter 7 is judgment of sin, like I said. Genesis chapter 8, what do we see over there? Verse 21, never again will he destroy the earth or curse the ground for man's sake. He shows again his sovereignty over the earth and his promise of never again to destroy it. That shows God's grace as well. Even though in that very same verse that man is still evil where it says there, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, even though we are continuing to be evil after the flood, 
and in his sovereignty he has the right to destroy us. He chooses to exercise grace by giving us the promise that he won't destroy the ground again. How about the next chapter, chapter 9? Chapter 9, he shows us the preciousness of human life. He shows his sovereignty in the sense that he gets to declare what's precious and what isn't. And in God's sovereignty, he says, human life is precious. And it has to do because we are created in the image of God. Because we bear the image of God, there's something special about human life. And he shows his grace in this chapter, where he says he'll never destroy the earth again with a flood. How about chapter 10? Chapter 10 is another one of those situations where we read it and we just see a whole bunch of names. But we find out in Genesis chapter 10 that even though man is still inclined to evil, he still encourages us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he's able to preserve a line that he's working toward to provide the Messiah that we're looking forward to. That we get to look back and go, I saw the fulfillment of that. I know who that's going to be. Genesis chapter 11, what happens over there? We got to see man's pride in its fullest, ugliest form, probably. That man's pride can lead to colossal accomplishments in man's eyes anyway, that are a colossal waste of time in God's eyes. We also got to see that God is not a being that has needs to be met by man. He doesn't need refreshing on a couch on the top of a cigarette. He doesn't need a pitcher of drink because he's thirsty. He doesn't need a virgin for pleasure. That it's not God's needs that are met by man, it's man's needs that are met by God. We got to see that in God's grace, just like he did with the garden, where he kicked out man and woman to spare them from having to endure living in that godless state, he does the same here in the Tower of Babel. He does little tweaks to their existence, changing their language, so that they won't continue to live in their godless state. And he preserves a line again in chapter 11. So what do we see? What is the big picture? This is painting for us a picture of the rest of not just Genesis, but the rest of the Bible. All right? Genesis 1 through 11. If you're to take Genesis, and if you're told to break Genesis into two parts, the division or the parts is Genesis chapter 1 through 11 and Genesis chapter 12 through 50. Starting in chapter 12, it's going to focus on this person here and his descendants, his line, his family. All right? This whole leading up to that gives us a foundation of who God is, what God looks like, what is his nature, what is his character. All right? And that paints for us a picture, not just for the rest of the book, but for the rest of the Bible and for our lives as well. If God is sovereign over mankind, doesn't he have the right to tell you what to do? Doesn't he have the right to tell me what to do? If God judges sin, do I expect I'm going to get away with sin? All right. If God shows grace, wow, isn't it neat that we would see that pattern recurring over and over and over again? You know, too often I hear people say, Oh, the God of the Old Testament is just this angry being. He's just mad at everybody. He's just judging everybody. But you know what I'm seeing in every single chapter? I'm seeing God not just sovereign. I'm seeing him as gracious. That God extends to his grace. And that's the trajectory we need to take with us as we move through the rest of the book of Genesis and through the rest of our study of the Bible. That the God of the New Testament is the same as the God of the Old. It's the same God. It's the one true God who is sovereign and gracious at the same time. Sovereign and loving at the same time. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to spend more time in your word. God, we pray that you would help us to be changed as a result of spending time in your word. And we pray that you would help us also to recognize that we're accountable to you. You have the right to tell us what to do. You have the right to command us in choices in life. And we pray that you would help us to recognize that responsibility that we have, that we are accountable to you, and that we will be held accountable for the choices that we make and the words that we say. 
Help us, Lord, to glorify you. Help us to honor you in the choices we make, the words that we say, the relationships that we keep. Help us, Lord, to live this life, not for our own pursuits or ambitions or our own drives, but for you, for your glory, Lord. Help us to be just useful instruments in your hands to establish and continue to add to your kingdom, not our kingdom. We pray that you would be glorified. We pray that you would be magnified. We pray that you would come again soon. We're looking forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.